time now to hear from God as He will speak to us through His Word. So let's open our ears to be attentive to what the Spirit has to say to His people. The first reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 10, to chapter 62, verse 3. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and as a garden causes seeds to grow, so the Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is the word of the Lord. The next reading is Galatians 4. Beginning with verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel portion is from the gospel according to Luke, the naming and circumcision of Jesus. Yes, please stand. It's a tradition that we honor the the Messiah, his words, the gospel of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the good news according to Luke. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, 
Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light to be a revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and then said to, his, to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to the Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we indeed are your needy children. And uh, first and foremost, we need your guidance and instruction. Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to live in a way that honorably bears your name and pleases you as well as bring us, your people, those blessings that come with obedience. We do ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. going to um, just say talk about the, the passage because tomorrow is a Holiday, the church calendar, used to be known as the Circumcision of Jesus Day. That was eight days after Christmas. But uh, as we are somewhat squeamish uh, in the modern world, uh, it's simply become the naming of Jesus, at least in many churches. And that's because it highlights the Jewish custom of giving a child a name when it is circumcised. That custom, which is still um, popular, you might say, or still prominent today uh, in Jewish life, that custom was first recorded or noted in the New Testament. And only hundreds of years later does it show up in the Talmud. 
So the New Testament is actually a very good source, yes, for Jewish thought and practice, not only in the first century, but in what uh, might, we might call early, early Judaism. And the stories of the, the account the two, uh, in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 is uh, in some ways very challenging because on one hand it's very particular. It's about the redemption of Israel and Jerusalem, the fulfillment of uh, Jewish hopes and expectations is found in the scripture, especially in the book of Isaiah and in the Psalms. It's also very universal. Yes, very human. Uh, it's very human as well. But of course, sometimes we have difficulty with the particular, right? We have sometimes difficulty with the Jewishness of Jesus. We, of course, like to talk about God, but we forget that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We like to talk about Jesus or Christ, as if Christ is the last name of Jesus. But of course, he's Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus of Nazareth. We think about the New Testament, but of course the New Testament is simply the new covenant that God makes first with the house of, house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Right? So all of this starts out of or comes to us from a Jewish matrix. It does become universal. It goes from here, where we are standing now, to there, which is everywhere. But of course, when we forget where it comes from, then we oftentimes find ourselves in danger of not only perhaps anti-Semitism, but even <clears throat> of false teaching or distorted teaching. And you may all be aware, I think some of us are aware at least, that there's a controversy about this. Something is very current. Of course, it's always dangerous to preach about current events, but I think this one uh, should not go, should not pass uh, without being commented upon. And of course, the issue is, is Jesus a Palestinian? Is Jesus a Palestinian? And of course, this has created bunches of controversy, uh, lots of anger, lots of amusement. And here we have, a, again, a certain challenge or even a paradox. If you're going to say, or if you're going to take make Jesus, yes, who not only was a Jew, but who is a Jew, because he maintains a Jewish identity even after the resurrection. As well, by the way, he retains a human form, which I think thinking about those is quite challenging and even somewhat radical. But if you're going to use the Jewish Jesus as a weapon against the Jewish people, that's anathema. That's anathema. If you're going to use 
the Jewish Jesus as some kind of political propaganda. All I can remit, all I can say is that, especially in Luke's gospel, right? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over, over Jerusalem because he's a Jew and he loves his people and he can foresee what's going to happen to them. And we should never separate Jesus from his people in such a way. Yes, it's a, it's a horrible form of anti-Judaism. But at the same time, I know some people who want to use the Jewishness of Jesus in some political way against the Palestinians. And that's equally wrong. Equally wrong. Can, does Jesus the Jew identify with Palestinian suffering? Yes. And Palestinians who call upon his name, yes, expect the Jewish Jesus to come to their help, to their defense, to understand their situation, yes. Does the Jewish Jesus understand the suffering of Israelis? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And so what do all these Jewish stories, right? Jesus with his very Jewish parents, Jesus going to the temple, Jesus meeting Anne and Simeon, what do they tell us? Or what do they teach us? Yes, what's the particular before we get to the universal? Because it's not wrong to be universal or to apply this to all of, right, the human family. Well, in particular, we have... Uh, Three couples in these two chapters, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, Anna and Simeon. Yes, three pairs. They're all Torah observant. They're all righteous. Yes, they all have a, an, a love for God. And they express that love for God by being obedient to God's commandments. In fact, I think all of, virtually all of them are called righteous. But you're going to say to me, no, no one is righteous. No, not one. Well, I don't know what you want to do with, yes, Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. But God declares them to be righteous. And we might want to factor that into our theology. Yes, they are all at least five times in chapter 2. We're told that the family of Jesus do things according to the law of Moses or the law of the Lord. Yes. That they are, again, very, very committed to being obedient to God's commandments. And part of what, part of why we find such statements is that Luke wants us all to know that um, the, those who are giving witness or testimony to Jesus, and even the family in which he's born, yes, these are very reliable people, right? They're not charlatans, they're not shady, they're not making things up, yes? There's a holiness or a godliness here. There's a fear 
uh, a certain um, fear of God. We also, I think it's important to take home that these two chapters, yes, does not enable us to be, uh, to engage in some form of replacement theology or to have some kind of uh, anti-Judaism because the hope, yes, that's expressed by Elizabeth, by Mary, by Simeon, it's unspoken, but by Anna, yes, is for the redemption of Israel or the redemption of, the, of Jerusalem with some hints, but not fully developed yet, of universal salvation or salvation even, yes, going from Israel to the Gentiles. Further, the stories teach us, yes, what is the nature of real discipleship? And Aaron touched on this really well last week, yes, that all discipleship, the basis of discipleship, the first one to say yes to Jesus wasn't Peter and John, you know, by the shores of the Lake Canaret. The first to say yes to Jesus was who? Mary. Mary, yes. She says yes, and she pays a price for it. She's still paying a price for it, right? The scoffing, the mocking, Yes, the disbelief, right? But all discipleship is modeled on Mary. And true Marian devotion, true devotion or true con any kind of connection that people may have or identification that we may have with Mary. And by the way, as a Protestant, it's okay to do that. Okay, especially when we're not asking her to pray for us, or right, because you can go direct. But still, to have that de admiration, devotion, respect, wanting to model our lives on her submission and obedience, yeah, all of that eventually points to Jesus and should point to Jesus. And truly, she's the real hero of uh, along with Joseph, but surely she's the real hero. Two other things before it goes universal. One more is the interesting, these folks who are so Torah observant or so you might say, take God's commandments seriously. Notice how active the Holy Spirit is in all of this. And we're used to thinking in really false terms or a false dichotomy <coughs> that the spirit and the law are in contradiction to each other. You can't be observant or careful about God's commandments because somehow that's legalism and that's not the spirit, right? That's not the spirit of liberty, right? Of course, the spirit, the Holy Spirit never allows us or gives us license to sin. 
But still, somehow, there's this false, as I, get, as I said, this false icon. And, um, and just in the few verses that Aaron read in uh, Luke, and of course, Luke loves to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, let's see. Just verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of, the, of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Right. This is not the only place. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Righteous, devout, right, and full of the Spirit. Yes. Actually, actually, the giving of the Holy Spirit is always without precondition. But maintaining fellowship and life in the Spirit will always depend on holiness. Right? Will always depend on holiness. And following God's commandments, yes, establishes safeguards in which that relationship, yes, can flourish. And finally, as I said to you before, this is not, this is about the future redemption of the Jewish people, but it also poses a really hard question because Simeon tells us that um, many of God's people are somehow going to reject this visitation. Yes, that uh, Jesus will be the cause of the rise and fall of many in Israel. You may say, well, how can that be? Well, I can tell you very easily. Just look at church history. Yes, the people of God who are, find themselves, yes, sitting in churches, believing they're saved, yes, taking the name of God upon their lips. How many times have God visited us or called us to repentance as a church or as a community? And how many times have we stiff-armed them and said no? A lot, if you know church history, right? We have not recognized the time of our visitation. So before we throw lots of stones at the Jewish people, yes, we should make sure that we certainly examine ourselves. So in a Jewish context, and by the way, I should add that Later in Luke's gospel, yes, Jesus does talk about the ultimate eventual redemption of Jerusalem and the Jewish people when he says cryptically, doesn't give us a lot of information, Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles, yes, until the time of the Gentiles is over. You can't write a big prophecy book about that. But Jesus certainly, I do, he I think, believe he does foresee the eventual redemption of the Jewish people and, you know, the return of the Jewish people to this country. So all of this is that's something that happens in its Jewish context. And what does it mean for us? What does it mean universally? What does it mean for folks in Bolivia and uh, others who uh, come from uh, Lakeland, Florida, or those who might find themselves, you know, eating, uh, eating out every night at a Chinese restaurant in Singapore. Yeah, what is all this? Well, all this, the stories 
that sound kind of quaint and kind of charming, especially when we consider the story of Jesus getting lost in the temple, um, the birth of Jesus, the angels come out. I think a lot of us have a hard time somehow connecting all these things. Yes, we don't quite get it. We, what is, yeah, they're nice, they're fun. Some of them are warm and fuzzy, especially when we put them in a Christmas carol. But what does it mean? And for many of us in the church, many of us as Christians, these are just means to an end. This is just to get Jesus to the cross so he can die for us and be, and, you know, be raised from the dead and then we can be saved, right? We can't connect the dots very well. But what I'd like to suggest is not only is, you know, salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but that in the incarnation, in these stories of Jesus' child, yes, in his baptism, in his, you might say, the duel he has in the desert with Satan, all of these things are salvific. They all make up, yes, what it means for us to be saved, right? And we shouldn't compartmentalize them or kind of sweep them under the rug, but we should see them for what they, we should see them for what, uh, certainly what they, they really are. And what I'd like to just read from Romans. And here we have in Romans 5, yes, it says the following. It says, for if, it says, uh, for if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Yes. How are we saved? Through the life of Jesus. We're not saved by an event. We're not saved by the death and resurrection. We're saved by a person. We are saved by a person, right? Who had an income, who had a birth, and who had a childhood, right? And all of these stories are there, and they're important for us. What do we learn from Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 1? We learn, actually, we can... We learn that Jesus, yes, chose to be born in obscurity, that he humbles himself, and while he has amazing parents, yes, the king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, yes, a member of the Godhead, yes, who's from Leolam in Hebrew, from eternity, and by the way, what was happening before God created? Yes, God was in a loving relationship with his son. Jesus, yes, there's a father and son relationship. It's a relationship based on love. And so Jesus, yes, empties himself. He's allowed to be born in obscurity, in poverty, 
right? There's nothing, I don't know, there's no wealth or no fame or anything attached. Uh, and by the way, this in many ways mirrors God's calling of Israel, right? Jesus being a son of Israel and Israel being a son of God. How, how and why, or why does God choose the Jewish people? Deuteronomy chapter, what, six, five, six, seven, sorry, tells us, seven, that God looked upon the people of Israel because they were insignificant. They were nobodies. He chose them, right, because of their, yeah, because of their small numbers, because of their insignificance. And Jesus is born into insignificance. And in that insignificance, right, he is what? Faithful. He's obedient. Yes, he's willing to learn from his parents because the text tells us how he goes to Nazareth and is raised in the fear and the wisdom of the Lord. We learn how he comes back from the temple at age 12, and he submits himself to his parents. He works. This morning I talked about my favorite church. One of my favorite churches is a church that everyone loves to hate. But if you've visited that church three, four hundred times, as I have, you actually, it grows on you and you start to love it. And... That church, somewhere in that church on the ground floor is a picture of Jesus working in wood. Yes, and it's my favorite picture because what it shows me, or what it reminds me of is that Jesus lives our life and he participates in a family and he works for a living and he brings dignity to work and dignity to family life. Yes, by being obedient, by being patient, waiting for the right time to start his ministry, although he had a little bit of a false start at age 12, and having a false start and missing God's timing is not a sin. It's not a sin, just a little enthusiasm. Yes, this is what, this is what we learn Yes, from these stories. Actually, Jesus empties himself. He empties, it's radical self-giving. And who's he giving to? He's giving to God. He's giving to his Father. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. And Jesus, because of that relationship that Jesus has with the Father, right? Jesus is willing, again, to humble himself, and to allow himself, right, to enter the world in poverty, in a country that was full of oppression and confusion, a country that was in crisis, yes. And all of that is salvific. All of that saves us. And there's some... You can say, no, we're saved by faith. You know, it's not of works. Can I read you from the book of Romans? 
the way I would say, and uh, Aaron Imey will jump to my defense. <laughs> you may need, uh, Aaron, when the tomatoes and the shoes start flying, you come and put your, throw yourself between me and the, and the stones that will come my way. You, we all know this verse, okay? This verse is the righteousness, this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, okay? Okay, this righteousness comes to faith, okay? Or another, how are we justified? By faith. It's, it, no, it's not our faith that justifies us. The way most scholars and most New Testament um, most New Testament experts now translate this verse. It is through the faithfulness. It's through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, because faith is very often faithfulness, more often than not, right? Pistus is not just believing in something. It's faithfulness. It's sort of a, a keep on keeping on. It's a loyalty. It's a persistence. Right, based on this, uh, based on this confidence or this trust in God. Yes, it's His faithfulness. Now, when was Jesus faithful? Not just at the cross. His faithfulness begins even before the incarnation. His faithfulness begins even before the incarnation. And again. What does that say to us, the Gentiles? What does it say to the whole human family, right? Jews and Gentiles alike. It says, I think the following. Yes, in the beginning, God made us in his image. But that image is broken, yes, thanks to sin, rebellion, and more. But it's God's, yes, God's intention, yes, it's always been God's intention to restore that broken image. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And that's a question that has hundreds of answers. And it can be very abstract and very philosophical. It can talk about things like choice and reason and free will. Yes, doesn't ever talk about, unfortunately, about physicality. Yes, about flesh. But it's hard to know what those things are. But where we see, yes, where do we see, yes, the image of God or what it means to be made in the image of God, we see it in Jesus the Messiah, right? Because it tells us in numerous places, whether it's in Colossians or Hebrews, right? That Hebrews 1. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Yes, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Or in Col the beautiful passage in Colossians, yes, which tells us that um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or principalities, all things were created by him and for him. If we want to truly be human, and we should all want to be human in the way that God intended for us, right? We don't run away from our humanity or our humanness. We're not trying to, yes, crucify it. We crucify our sinful desires. We're not trying to, yes, obliterate our bodies or what's physical about us. If we want, yes, to be restored and to be the people that God originally intended, it happens when we model ourselves on Jesus the Messiah. It happens when we become his disciple. It happens, yes, like in all these stories that we read about in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, when we're willing to be obedient, yes, when we're willing to be faithful, when we're really to some empty ourselves and see our lives as a gift, yes, as being a gift to others. God has given us life, yes, and we give life to others. It's in a radical self-denial. Yes, that's what these stories teach us, right? That being the disciple of Jesus, following him, <clears throat> and not just imitating him, but yes, entering in to the relationship that he has with the Father, yes, participating in that life and not standing only outside as an observer. That's God's intention for all of us. And here we stand on the eve of, here we, it's New Year's Eve. And New Year's Eve is famous for what? not just the fireworks at the Sydney Opera House, but New Year's Eve is famous for New Year's resolutions. And, um, you know, they're good for about 20 or 30 minutes. And all, most of these resolutions are about what? They're about me. They're about uh, my self-improvement. They're about uh, me somehow getting, getting ahead, uh, treating myself better, being nicer to myself, being kinder, gentler, eating the right things, drinking less alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, not, not spending so much time on my phone and so much time watching, you know, YouTube videos. The world says something completely different. The world says if you want satisfaction or if you want uh, fulfillment, if you want to find meaning in life, look after yourself. Pamper yourself. Make sure you, there is flourishing. The gospel, again, kind of characterized by these sweet, charming stories of Jesus and his childhood and his parents. Yes. The gospel says all of that is a, not a bad thing, but it's found, yes, it's found in the imitation of Jesus. It's found in self-giving. Yes, it's found in self-denial. It's sometimes found in suffering, and we may not like that. Yes. It's found sometimes in being always found in obedience and faithfulness. Yes. 
and the willing to, willingness perhaps to learn from others and not to maybe put ourselves forward and more. That's the story. That's the, the Jewish story and the human story that's found in these charming tales, you might say, or accounts, yes, of the pious parents of Jesus, his appearance in the temple, and more. So brothers and sisters, the invitation, yes, is to model ourselves on Jesus. Not just the Jesus who walks around in the Galilee healing, but also the Jesus who lives in obscurity and lives faithfully and obediently until God's call and releases him, yes, to another phase of his life. Father in heaven, we pray that you'll give us the courage and, Lord, that you'll give us the grace. Lord, fill us full of your Holy Spirit. And as you sit at the right hand of the Father, we do pray that you, Lord Jesus, will make intercession for us so that uh, our lives, yes, can reflect your life. We pray that uh, you will strengthen your people in all these things. Amen.